after all this time, what made you kind of put your story uh, to pen and paper and put it out there? Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, first, uh, I've been wanting to write this story for a decade. And then about five years ago, I started to try to really write it. Uh, and man, I just would start and stop and I'd chicken out and then I'd try again <laughs> and then I'd get confused on the order and the sequencing on how to fit everything together. And, and finally I just, uh, made a commitment. I said, I'm going to get this thing done. And, um, you know, it's, I'm really proud of it. And, um, you know, I've, I've lived a pretty crazy life and gone through a lot of wild experiences and I didn't really think that it was just meant for me. And, um, now I run a life and business coach, uh, life and business coaching business. And, um, you know, uh, I'm constantly using these experiences that I had, or I went through to help my, um, clients. So, I thought, well, if it's helping all of them, um, why don't I just write a book about it and then help as many people as possible? So, yeah, man, I'm just grateful uh, for everyone buying it. It's, it became an Amazon bestseller uh, day one, and then it, it's been there for a week. And I see somebody else is cruising up the ranks, so I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta promote it a little bit more, and uh, you know, get get back, uh, you know, all the top spots. I, I think I had like the Kindle and the soft cover version, uh, number one and two. So that was really exciting. And um, now I'm getting some competition. So I got to like put the hammer down and make sure it's st- <laughs> make sure it stays there. I, I love the competitive edge, Dave. And Sean here, a <laughs> uh, big part of your story was obviously your concussion history. And you, you had a lot of struggles there. And obviously with the, the fifth one being the worst. And I guess maybe just for the audience, just describe to us what it's like being a professional athlete and and having those sorts of setbacks, especially when you talk about something that's still kind of unknown in the sports world as far as concussion goes, right? They're still trying to figure that whole thing out and, and, and its long-term effects on players and everything like that. Maybe you can just talk about you know, your, your issues and your struggles with the concussions, how you were able to bounce back and, and turn that into a positive experience <clears throat> for yourself. Yeah, it's really wild and like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't really necessarily consider myself a concussion expert, but the fact that I spent so many um, days, especially after my fifth concussion, I was at the Mayo Clinic three days a week for three years. So I really got to kind of learn on things about the brain and how the brain works. And, you know, there's this really weird theory that they, they kind of uh, have proven is that if you've had one concussion, you're twice as likely to get two. And if you've had two, you're four times as likely to get three. And if you've had three, you're 16 times as likely to get four. And then if you've had four, it's like 164 times. Wow. So whatever, like, however it compounds like that, it, it, after five, it just doesn't seem, uh, smart to go (laughs) and play. And, and the fact that like somehow my I was literally on Alzheimer's medicine. I was slurring my speech. I, I couldn't even run or exercise. I was dragging my leg when I walked. I was like really, really, really messed up. And um, this didn't go away. And the doctors at the Mayo Clinic had told me, he said, sorry, Dave, but you know, you're going to have permanent disabilities with the rest of your life. And you know, I could have accepted that diagnosis and gone home and felt sorry for myself. And I remember just like sitting in my car and I was crying outside. I wrote a little bit about this in the book and I'm crying in my car and I'm just like, man, like I'm a young guy. I got three babies at home. Like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna 
live another 60 years in this condition. And it got really scary and really dark for me. I got, I was embarrassed about what happened to me. I kind of went into hiding for a couple of years. Nobody really knew what happened to me. Like some of my best friends didn't know how scary it was getting for me and the crazy thoughts that were going through my head. And, and that just came from the never ending headaches that were just pounding my temples, never ending all day. And then not having a memory, like it was like I was had dementia or something. And wow. um, for a young guy, uh, when I couldn't work and I couldn't exercise and I couldn't take care of my kids and I, I was just getting fat and like just miserable with the pain that my head was in, I couldn't concentrate. I could, I could barely read. And it was weird. I, I had a photographic memory when I was a child. I skipped a couple of grades. Like school is easy for me. Wow. I, I, I went from that to like, not being able to process like anything and it was devastating and scary. Plus there's a whole thing about losing my identity now. So like now I'm not a hockey player, like who am I? And then what am I, why am I back here? Like I chose to come back from in heaven and that's a little twist in the book that people may, they know now, uh, spoiler alert, but, <laughs> but, but I'm like, I came back I came, I chose to come back here to this world and I left like this per perfection. And, um, and then I was just like stuck and I was broken and I'm like, did I just make the biggest mistake of my life? Like, what did I, I screwed up. I messed up and I'd like blame myself. And it was so weird. It was like a vicious cycle, but I ultimately ended up understanding through my process. And, and this message came to me was that God had put me in that, dark hole in that pit for so long for three years so that I would understand that intimately and deeply and 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 have these other new um understandings of compassion and of fear and anxiety and depression and all these crazy things that I never had before I never had any of those ever in my career I was very lucky I was super positive and mostly healthy and like so then for me to go into this dark hole uh, it was kind of explained to me that that needed to happen for the people that I was about to help with in, in life. And that was kind of the day that I knew I was going to start to life coach and help people and started chasing Tony Robbins around the world for a couple of years. And Tony's, Tony just said, I have no choice. I have to do this. And uh, it's not about me anymore. So for the last, uh, gosh, I don't know, seven or eight years I've been, I've been, helping a lot of people. And then last year we started doing a couple of free online challenges during the year. And we, we helped over 17,000 people in those challenges. So yeah. that was uh, really fun to be able to, to give back and give people some coaching that I pulled from all different parts of the world and the globe and the teachers like Tony and all these insanely brilliant people that they didn't think that I was broken or that I was permanently disabled. They just thought that, I needed to get into a different state to be able to heal. And ultimately I discovered, I just, I was covered up in masks and armor and I just really had to like remove all of that stuff to really get to the grace and the healing that was trying to get to me and get to all of us. So yeah, it's a really crazy story. And uh, I was really scared to write it. I'm like, what are people going to say? Right. But it's what I teach. Like it doesn't, if I can't authentically be me, then what am I going to do? Walk around the rest of my life pretending and not telling the truth. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not 
who I am and, and my strength comes from my honesty and my vulnerability and my authenticity. So I'm like, I don't care. Like, let's just get this thing out. Cause it's going to help somebody. I have an affinity for, for obviously athletes and, you know, uh, for service res- responders and nine 11. And it just reminded me of all the firemen, all the policemen and stuff. I've, I've helped a lot of those guys and vets, army vets and military. And like, when you got to go and do really, really scary things and cover yourself up because you're so sensitive to it. Like I was a really sensitive kid. Um, eventually you just start to live that like as your normal. And that's when you kind of lose touch of like, you know, the alignment and the purity of the way that we were originally created as these sensitive little creatures, at least in my case. (laughs) Talking with Dave Scatcher here, Islanders alumni and author of the new book, The Comeback, My Journey Through Heaven and Hell. And and Dave, one of the the great stories in the book, I mean, you kind of hit it right off the bat, um, and you kind of alluded alluded there about your... The, the concussion where you kind of had that sort of epiphany where you where you in the, you were in this place where you were making the decision to kind of stay there or come back and, and go back to your family and um, this really kind of spiritual moment and, and you kind of hit everyone with that story right in the beginning of the book which which was really fascinating and I'm curious what was that moment like for you and uh, I, I know at one point you talk about how, you wondered if you made the right decision by coming back, which I thought was also a very powerful point early on. Um, you know, I didn't grow up with religion or church. Like I was, I was curious and I always like spoke to God and things like that as a little boy. And then it kind of went away um, just because it wasn't really practiced, mm-hmm. you know, in my family. And it wasn't like my parents were against it or anything like that. It just wasn't part of our routine. And like, I, like I have zero, one of the greatest blessings that I have now in my life is that I don't, I have zero judgment for anybody because I've done so much work with so many people from around the world. There's almost nothing that I haven't heard. And we're all, we all have our stuff and it's okay. We don't have to judge it. We don't have to beat it up. So like having that grace and that non-judgmental place where it's safe, like I have this group of 6,000 people online in, in this Facebook group from, from my challenges. I've got another group of like 200. that are like all clients and stuff. And like these people have shared stuff with me and in front of that group that their only family members don't know, like serious stuff. And our group is so full of love and so full of light. And I'm really, really proud of it. And these are things like I would have never created if I <laughs> was just a hockey player. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, God, let me be a hockey player. And that was an amazing journey. I'm so grateful for it. And it taught me so much. And like, you know, a lot of what I, like I build out of my coaching is from my hockey background, but then there's this whole other side that's like, would have never been developed if I wouldn't have got the concussion. Like the concussion was the greatest gift. It ended my career. I could stay home and say, well, you know, I'm so unlucky. I could have accepted that diagnosis from the best doctors in the world saying, you know what, you're just disabled. And I would have been like, well, I guess that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Like, you know, I'm so unlucky. I could have went and made millions of dollars more and I could have done this. I could have done that. And like felt sorry for myself. And like lots of guys do it and lots of people do it. They accept their diagnosis. And I just would not accept that. I said, there's got to be a way, man. I don't care if I got to go train with monks in India. I don't (laughs) care if I got to go do ayahuasca in the Amazon jungle. I don't care what I got to do. And like, 
you know, my experience with ayahuasca wasn't great. Um, I was already kind of on my way out, you know, and, and I felt it wasn't, it wasn't super cool for me, but I do know that, you know, some athletes that it has helped. Um, but yeah, like I don't even talk about that stuff because all of the healing was really began when I was able to like authentically move into the purest version of myself. And that just came from removing all the armor that I'd stacked on over the years doing not just this job, but like covering up the little, the little sensitive David, I guess. Uh, and, uh, I was just doing that to protect him, you know? And, uh, I did some pretty incredible things with my life and fighting people and playing physical and doing all that stuff. Like it was almost like somebody else <laughs> did all that stuff. Cause it's like, not my nature. It's not in my nature at all. And, uh, it sounds funny for me to talk about now, but like, yeah, I don't even, yeah, it's pretty wild. Like, um, especially like Tony told me, he said, Dave, uh, a wizard can do more in his pinky than a gladiator can do in his lifetime. And it really got me thinking like, well, why don't I just become a wizard? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, what? Right. And, 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 you know, we have this beautiful platform called the internet where you can almost learn anything you want for free on YouTube. You can train with people. There's free challenges all over the world. Like there's a chance if somebody wants to shift something, they can go and do it. So there's no real excuses, I, I believe, for people to just get stuck and, and feel sorry for themselves. It, it's really a matter of just stepping out and like going for it and not worrying about what people think of you or having fear of failure or, or judgment. You just got to like rock it. And uh, that's how I did it with the book. So, yeah. Dave, you, you, you mentioned a lot of good stuff in there. I wanted to go back. You mentioned about not accepting the diagnosis. And, and it seems like that's kind of a common theme in your, in your life, not accepting sort of someone saying no or not accepting uh, a criticism and taking it and using that as motivation. You talk about it um, from when you were a kid playing, when you were 12 playing with, you know, 15 and 16-year-olds. You talk about it in, you know, climbing through the, the junior hockey ranks, playing, you know, getting your way to Portland um, and, and dealing with tough coaches there that sort of stemmed at least from, from my understanding from reading the book really from the way your your father and your mom helped raise you especially early on and, and the way they encouraged you it, it, it seemed like they played such a big role and I really admired the way that and you talk a lot about in the book about it your dad kind of saying we're here we're supporting you and giving you that option to to make your own decision but always putting the the for lack of a better word, the consequences out there of whatever that decision is going to be. So you know what decision you're making and what's going to happen when you make it. What was that like growing up with that kind of um, support and, and kind of how did that mold you into the person and, and the hockey player that you became? Yeah. And, and thank you for repeating that because like, I know you read the book, <laughs> like if you're talking <laughs> like that, like, you're not just another podcaster that, that that's pretended to read the book and just <laughs> wanted, wanted some ra ratings, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, what's really crazy, and I can't remember if I put this in the book or not, but, like, my dad was a farmer from Alberta, okay, and then he worked in the coal mines. Right. Like, he, he didn't read a lot. He didn't have some great knowledge, like, teacher, mentor, like, none of it, right? 
But my entire life, the baseline, like my dad was like a life coach before there was life coaches. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and he was like my Tony Rock. My dad was my hero. And uh, God rest his soul, he passed a couple years ago and I lost like my best friend. But, um, you know, I would be in India and a monk would be talking to me and he would say like an exact line that like my father taught me growing up. And I'm like, where have I heard this before? I'm like, who? I'm like, dad? How does dad know the same thing as, you know, Sri Bhagavad, the, the deity of oneness, you know? And then I'm like, uh, I'd be, Tony would be talking and, and I'm like, where have I heard that before? And, and it's like my freaking dad. And then like no, all over the world, shaman and all these like interesting teachers and energy healers and all these people. And it would be things that my dad had said. And I truly believe that my dad was being given those words because this is this has all been designed perfectly. And those words I needed to hear as a young boy, because they were things that kept me going. And the number one thing that my dad did was like belief. Like he believed more in me. And during his funeral, I had a bunch of my teammates and my dad coached growing up and they all came to me like crying. And they're like, your dad was like more, more like a dad to me than my own dad was. And he believed in me more than I ever could believe in myself. And um, I don't think that I, I shared this story in the book. I, 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 I'm not sure, but I think it's a really good story. So I don't know how we're doing on time, but I'll, <laughs> we have all the time in the world. Sure, so, yeah. okay. Share away. No, th this is a cool story. So I'm at the funeral and I have to give the eulogy and I'm just destroyed, man. My best buddy's dead. And I'm like, how my, how would my dad want this? And my, and my dad would want it where people were inspired to live a bigger life. And, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to get emotional, but it's all, right. um, all good. I, I'm the first one to speak. And, and I don't know if you can like crush a speech at a funeral, but like, <laughs> I almost got, a, it was like, people started standing up like a standing ovation <laughs> at a funeral. And people are telling my mom, they're like, that funeral was amazing. And my mom's like, I don't want to hear that right now. <laughs> they're walking around town, like talking about the speech at the funeral, but I can joke around about it now. And my dad would want me to joke around about it, but um, I was just trying to explain if people didn't know that side of my dad, I was trying to share things. And then like out of thin air, out of like a movie, this guy's sitting like in the second row behind the family and none of us know who he is. And we're looking at each other like, who's this guy? And um, at the end we say, would anybody like to say any words about Kim Scatchard? And like, he jumps up like almost before my sister and my brother, like, <laughs> This guy wanted to talk. So uh, he was like the second or third person to speak. And none of us know who this guy is. And he goes, many of you probably don't know who I am. But um, man, I forget. Isn't it Steve maybe? Uh, and he goes, I drove through the night when I heard what happened to Kim. And I don't even know how I heard because we kept it really low key. We didn't want a big deal. So there's only like maybe 100 people there. And he heard about it and he drove from this other town like eight or nine hours away and he drove wow. through the night. He worked the night shift and drove through the night to get to the funeral with his dog in his van. Wow. Okay. So he shows up and he goes, I just had to share how much this man meant to me. And like, still none of us know who he is. And he looks at my mom and he's like, Jan, you probably don't remember me, but I was like a 15 year old boy and I didn't really have a dad. And, um, when you, when Cam started hang gliding, my dad was one of the first hang gliders in North America. 
So wow, when those that's, that's when those crazy. kites when those kites would jump off those mountains, like back in the day, they were not safe, like at all. <laughs> and they were like death traps. And my dad had like the second or third license, I think, in all of Canada wow. to be able to do this. So what they do is they jump off the, I think it was called Athabasca Tower. They jump off this tower at the top of a mountain and wherever the wind takes them, it takes them. So there'd have to be somebody to drive a van to go scoop these guys up. Most of the time they were in the trees. Like my dad was a terrible pilot, <laughs> but, but he, he's a, he's a adrenaline junkie, adrenaline junkie. So anyways, long story short, they needed this kid to drive. In Alberta, you get your learner's license at 14. So my dad kind of like starts mentoring this young man. And this is before he had me. And uh, he became part of like my dad's little crew. And they had wow. like two or three guys and they started doing this. And this kid was just like the retriever. So um, anyways, he was really timid, really scared boy, but he loved hanging out with my dad. So I think because he saw things in my dad that he almost wished he could be one day or something like that. He was kind of paraphrasing that. So he gets up on this tower one day and, and my dad's about to go and he goes, you know what? I just want you to feel like what it would feel like just to be floating. And he goes, if you just put your feet in the, in the, in the stirrup thing, like up back and just put your hands here, I can hold it from the front of the kite and just let the wind blow it. And you can just kind of see what it would feel like, like just from like a few feet off the ground. I'll just hold it. The kites were, you know, once wind took them, they were pretty light. Yeah. So he's like doing this and the kid's like, Oh, that's so cool and stuff. He's like, yeah. He's like, I just, I would never be brave enough to do this. And my dad goes, I think you could do it. And the kid's like, no, I definitely can't. And he starts to try to get his feet out of the, out of the <laughs> back, out of the kite. And my dad's like, no, you can do this. And the kid's like, no way, like no chance, whatever. And my dad's like, look, you're almost going right now. Like the wind is just taking you. Like, it'll be a peaceful journey. Like, just go. It's the most beautiful thing ever. And the kid's like, no, I can't do it. My dad starts screaming, you could do it. And the kid's like, I can't do it. And it's like, you can do it. And he said he put one foot down and he tried to like shove the kite at my dad to like hit my dad because he was like getting really scared. And he said, my dad just stepped out of the way. Wow. Wow. And he, and he went. Oh, and, and he started flying <laughs> and he's in this guy and he's flying and my dad's cheering the other guy that my dad's with is cheering and they're cheering for this young man and the guy said he was like pissing his pants he was so <laughs> terrified <laughs> so so but then when he finally got up there and saw how beautiful it was he said his life transformed in an instant like wow, that wow and he said he became addicted and he said he would have never found that hero of himself, that version of himself that was brave enough to do that if it wasn't for my dad. And then he shared what he does now. And he's an extreme wow. adventure guide. Wow. He, runs a, he, he runs a paragliding business and a downhill mountain biking business. And that's his business. That's amazing. Life. That's amazing. Just goes to show you, right? One little branch in your in your timeline, that's so to speak, and awesome it changes story. your life. That's amazing, Dave. That's fantastic stuff. Well, Dave, yeah. we appreciate all this time you're giving us. So if you got to go, you got to go. But no, we, let's keep going. Oh, let's do this. It. We, have, we have a ton well, of questions. That's so, that's yeah. the thing. We would be remiss, yeah. Dave, having you on this Islander podcast and not talking <laughs> about your time playing for the Islanders. So I'll start with an easy one. What what is your fondest memory? What what do you remember most about your time in that era of New York Islander hockey? For me personally, as a fan, 
That was that was the best Islander hockey I saw up until very recently. I I was born in the early '80s, so I missed the cups. And you you got the tail end of the the rough part of the late '90s, mm-hmm. and then you got your resurgence coming into the early 2000s. You were a big part of that, and uh, that was really the first special team for me uh, heading into my adult life. So I'd love to just hear your take on being part of that little resurgence in the early 2000s and, um, you know, maybe just how that, um, you know, affected you as a player in, in your, in your career. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, the reputation around the league was not good for the Islanders when I got traded there. And that was the, right after the Spano thing, Vancouver was like a first class organization. Now all of a sudden I'm going down to, the aisle and and the teams in bankruptcy. Mil- nobody's there to pick me up at the airport. As I oh, in no. the, book. <laughs> uh, uh, the team was in disarray. Nobody knew who was. They didn't have enough staff. Uh, we were flying on regular planes with little old grandmas and stuff. Like Zdeno Char at one point, I think was in the middle seat with like you know like <laughs> like like six foot nine months. You know, it's just ridiculous. And uh, um, but I. As a player, it was truly my most favorite time ever uh, playing in the island. Uh, I found my, I felt, I, I felt I got a chance to play to show what I could do because we didn't really have a bunch of superstars. I thought that I got a fair shake. I love the fans and the passion. I'm proud of how we turned the ship around. I remember my first game. Uh, I came from a pretty prideful group, even though Va- the Vancouver didn't win anything. We had a really good group of leaders there with Messier and everything. And um, we we lost that first game. And I remember like guys were kind of like, whatever, like they didn't. And I was so pissed off and I, I went in, I fought and I wanted to send a message my first game and be like, listen, we're not just going to lay over and let teams just like beat us and like think it's like, you know, and I'm not saying Dave Scatchard had, some massive impact or anything like that. But I, I think, enough, I think enough guys kind of got, got the message from that fight. And I'm like, boys, like, let's go. Like, look, we don't have superstars, but we got a bunch of like good second and third line guys. And we can just like, we can battle teams. And we were hard to play against because we, we did have like a bunch of like second and third line guys. So like, you know, we didn't really get blown out. But they'd usually score an extra one on the power play the first year or two. And, like, it was kind of that was the difference all the time. And mm-hmm. um, finally, when they got things sorted out and Charles Wong took over and then he started making some moves and bringing in a few players and stuff, then we could kind of, like, we were on fair footing. And, and um, man, that that year I had, and I just talked to Jason Blake yesterday. We've, we've kind of reconnected. Uh, and he asked me for a copy of the book. And, nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, cheap guy didn't want to buy his own. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, that line I had with uh, Weimer and Blake, I remember s- some reporter brought it up to me the second half of that year that they said, like, you guys are the number one third line in the NHL. And I had 27 goals that year. I had two hat tricks in a month. Um, it was a really special, special uh, year for me personally. And... Um, you know, that, that year where we went to the playoffs against Toronto, that series was so vicious. Oh, my goodness. That was the craziest hockey I've ever played. And it was, like, dirty. Like, guys were trying to hurt each other. And uh, I remember Pekka's knee That's right. got blown out. Yeah. And then, like, you know, uh, 
I can't remember if it was because of that that I fought Shane Corson the next year or something. It was a big deal in the media. I was getting death threats and all this kind of stuff. Jeez. But um, yeah, that was that was fun, man. We we had such a good group of guys. Most of us were single. We were just concentrating on hockey. And then we had this fun rule <laughs> the first year because we were mathematically limited from playoffs by the time I got there almost in <laughs> December. Um, the guys would say like, okay, I think it was Mario Strakowski. He'd be like, boys, like 30 minutes to the city, no traffic, you know, limousines waiting. We <laughs> we only go if we win, you boys. We got to win. We got to win. We go to the city, you know, you know nice. Everything will be good, you know? So <laughs> love it. <laughs> so, so that was like our motivation. And like even Milbury like kind of was in on it. And like he just knew, like he felt bad. The, the first time, the first, uh, you know, this is, I guess it's coming out now because I think I put it in the book, but you know, I got traded there and he calls me in the office and he goes, listen, you were a really key part of this trade. I wasn't going to do the trade if I couldn't have got you. And he goes, I think you can play. And he goes, I think you can get a chance here. But he goes, we're out of, like, I can't make any deals. I can't make any trades. Like, like your years, your years kind of like shot as far as like playoff chances goes. So he goes like, go to the city, enjoy the city. <sighs> you got, you kind of got the green light for it, for it. And New York is like one of the greatest cities in the world. And, he said, uh, like, as long as you play hard, I don't really care what you do. So that first, <laughs> the first few months, I'm like, wow, this is kind of crazy. But uh, <laughs> I liked how hard we played. We, pl- we did play hard for sure. And then we kind of got more professional, I'd say, the next few years. We started to, like, dial it in a little bit more, you know? Right on. We are talking with Islanders alumni Dave Scatcherd, the author of The Comeback, My Journey Through Heaven and Hell. And, and Dave, you mentioned all these these great stories from your time on the island. One that I really enjoyed was your telling of facing Mark Crawford again for the first time when the Canucks <laughs> came to Long Island. And, um, you know, I've covered the team for about 10 years now, and I think I've only ever seen that gate between the two, uh, two locker rooms closed once, and that was the... A 2011 brawl between the Islanders and Penguins. I had never known it was used before that, but sure enough, you had quite the interesting interaction with your former coach, which basically, I guess, kind of precipitated that trade from Vancouver to Long Island. Mm-hmm. Maybe share that story, if you will, with us and, and how you recall that whole thing going down. Yeah, and I'll I'll paraphrase like what, so I'm, I'm walking down the street on Robson street in Vancouver during the summer after my trade. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, Mike, who is it? It was Brian Burke's, uh, Dave Nonis. I think it was Dave Nonis, Dave, Brian Burke's assistant. Okay. Dave Nonis comes running out of a restaurant in Vancouver and grabs me off the street. <laughs> and I'm like, Noni, what are you doing here? He goes, Burke, you and I are having like uh, lunch. And I'm like, come on in. And I'm like, okay. So it's like summer and they start chatting at me up and Berkey goes, Hey, I love you. I did not want to trade you. Like Mark Crawford gave me a list of guys he didn't want on the team. And you were one of them. And he was not going to give you a shot ever. Like he was trying to bury you. He didn't want you to, he just, whatever reason, didn't think you could play. And he goes, I kept telling him, give this kid a chance. Give this kid a chance. He's like, Nope, I want him out. So that was kind of how I knew that, Crow didn't like me, but like that never came out in the media or anything like that. And then the next year, I was on, I was, I got 20 goals that year. I, I played great. I made Crow look bad by, you know, scoring 20 goals. Yeah. And uh, I think it was the next year or whatever. It was pretty close after that. 
And um, and I'm at the game, and I just hear this like guy screaming from their bench, like I I got somebody for you. And he's got this really high pitched voice. I got somebody <laughs> for you, Scatcher. Yeah, and he's just swearing like crazy. Like, am I allowed to swear on this podcast or no? No, 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 no. But he's calling me every name you effing, you know, you know, the like, I can't do it without swearing, but he's calling me every name and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, who is yelling at me from the bench? And like, most of those guys are my buddies. Like I was a, I was a good teammate. My teammates love me. So it's like, I'm, I know none of those are my guys. So I turn around, I look at the bench, expecting it to be some guy they called up or something. And it's Crawford standing like on the bench, screaming at the top of his lungs, saying he's got somebody for me that I'm a pussy that he's gonna kill me, like da 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 da. And I look at him and I'm like, "What are you doing talking?" I said, "You can send anybody out here that you want." I go, "I guarantee you that those guys would rather beat you up than beat me up." <laughs> so it goes on for the whole game, and I, I just ignore him. The whole game, he's just screaming at me and screaming at me and screaming at me. I'm like, what's this guy's deal? I don't know if he's trying to get the t- – I don't, I, I don't know. So I felt so amazing because they were at the end of a long road trip, and it was like I think it was 2-2, two to two, something like that. And we ended up scoring uh, to win 3-2. to two. And I skated by their bench, and I'm like, F you, grow. Go nice. back to Vancouver, right? <laughs> so I go back. We're all high five, and we win the game. All the boys are cheering, and my whole team heard him screaming at me the whole game too. So they're like, "Can you believe Pro is yelling Joe game?" I'm like, "No." So I'm hanging up all my gear, my stall, everything, and I got like half my gear off. And Eric Karens comes running in. He goes, "Oh my God, Sketch, you got to see it. Crow's out there, and he's calling Yon to fight." And I'm like, "Please, let's do this." So I go running out of the dressing room, and like, it was such, he was such, such an idiot, like. There's the screen, so he's obviously not going to get to me, and he's putting his arms through the screen like he's going to somehow like come through the screen after me, and my whole team is like laughing at him, and then he starts spitting at me and wow. calling me every name in the book. Yeah, and this our our security guards were pushing Jeez. him away. I didn't even I didn't I didn't even bother going any closer. Like, what am I going to do? Yeah. So, <laughs> so this is this is what a this is what a this is what this guy's like. Okay. So the next morning, I get a call from Milbury. And he goes, hey, I got a call from Brian Burke. And he said that Mark Crawford said that you were trying to start a fight with him, like Amazing. the whole game <laughs> and all of this stuff. And I'm like, are you kidding me, Mike? I go, you think I got I got worried about Mark Crawford? I don't care about the coach. I, it has nothing to do with the So, but this is the what kind of guy he was. So I called Brian Burke in Vancouver. Uh, he, I leave a message for him. I go, Berkey, call me because he's mad at me. So he goes, what's the story about Crawford? Like, did you really call him on? I go, Brian, you know me. Would I do that? He goes, no, that's why I'm calling you. Like, what's the story? <laughs> and, and I go, your coach was screaming at me the whole game, calling me every name in the book. Then he tried to run around the thing and try to come into my dressing room and fight me after the game. And he's like, are you kidding me? I go, I swear, it's truth. Ask all your players. So he goes, all right, Dave, if that's the truth, and I'm, I believe you on this, He's like, you have permission to beat the crap out of him anytime you ever see him again and tell him that I said so. So that's kind of how cool Brian Burke is and what a a-hole Mark Crawford is. <laughs> that's so an I, I, excellent yeah. story. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so, Dave, um, with every one of our guests on the show here, uh, we throw out a random question. 
And kind of a little bit off topic, whatever the case may be, maybe to get a laugh. But this is a layup for you. So a random question for you, Dave, is who was the funniest guy in the Islander locker room during your time there? And do you happen to have a story you can share maybe related to that guy if you have the time? I had so many good teammates, man. (laughs) Uh, Well, there's there's a lot. Um, (laughs) I bet. (laughs) The first guy that when when you said funny to me, I thought of uh, Sean Bates. Um, Okay, and 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 Batesy, he's kind of blind in one eye, so he's got like they call him like I think is is it Sully from uh, Monsters Inc. The little green guy with one eye. Oh, no, Mike Wazowski. Oh. That's right. Okay. Yeah, Sully and then, was the big guy. That's right. The big Sully guy. Was the big so guy. they called Eric Karen Sully <laughs> and then <laughs> and then and then Batesy Mike Wazowski, okay? So uh Batesy had this Boston accent. It's like sketch playoffs. What, what? You remember that college coach that said that? The oh, yeah, playoff yes. line? Yes. So Batesy would Batesy would say that nonstop. And then he's like he just had all the one-liners. Uh, he called everybody baby doll. And uh, <laughs> his boys from Boston would come in and drink out the whole wives' lounge of, like, all their wine and all their beer. And, like, he was just hilarious. Like, and that was how he grew up. Like, he didn't even know he was – well, he, he was pretty funny, but, like, he just was being himself, and he was uh, hilarious. Adrian Acoin, great one-liners, great stories. Kevin Weeks, great accents and great impersonations. Nice. Um Oh my goodness, man. We had some funny, funny dudes. We had so many great memories with that team. Um, like I really miss that team. I'd love to do a reunion. I, I, I think it's incredible what the new owners are doing and bringing the guys back every year. It's, it's gotta get in there, abs- Dave. You gotta get in there. Oh, I've been there. I've been there every year. So, um, you know, I'll be back whenever they redo it after the stinking COVID thing. But, yeah. um, it has been, uh, just, a, a, a joy to watch how the level of class has been brought up with the organization and to see the the players that they have now, even the coaching staff, like Lane Lambert was part of my comeback after my year and a half off after my fourth concussion, I joined him in, in Milwaukee and he was just unbelievable. One of my favorite guys in the world. So if you see him, tell him I said that uh, Barry trots I had with in Nashville um, trots. He's a great guy. Uh, so I mean, I just like where they're headed and I like the potential and I think they're only a piece or two away from like just dominating like everything. Like they they should win. Um they have a good enough team to do it and I think they just need another uh piece or two, but I really I really thought they could have done it last year. I, I, you and I think every Islander yeah. fan was was yeah. really was really hoping for that. And I have to ask you though, Dave. I mean, you've given up so much of your time, and we appreciate that. I will let you go after this this last question. But one of your former teammates, Zdeno Char, rejoining the Islanders this season. Um, you know what, what? When you heard the news, what did you think of that? A that that Z is still playing at forty four, and and B that he's going back to a place that he got it started. Yeah. So, like. I could go way back in the day. I think he played for the Prince George Cougars or something, didn't he? Like in junior, uh, if I'm not mistaken. That I'd have to look up. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to pretend. But I think that I've seen him play since then. Okay. And and the development that this guy has done in every aspect of his life, like 
I think he got a financial degree while he was playing. Um, he's captain. He's always one of the fittest guys. He took it super professionally. Some guys didn't like it because he was so serious all the time and everything, but it's like, that's, that's a pro's pro. Like, you know, um, and I think that he felt like he needed to do that to continue to get better. And it's almost like, uh, you know, when you start off behind and then, okay, here's an example. So I know this like hit producer guy in Nashville, he does all the biggest bands in the world. And I was talking to him and I was going to help him with some coaching stuff. And he said, um, you know, sketch, uh, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm not going to have another hit single. And I'm like, dude, you had like 20 hit singles. Like, what do you mean? And he goes, he goes, I don't want people to think it's a fluke. He goes, I don't take, he goes, I don't take vacations. He goes, I just, it's something broken in me where I just can't like stop. I have to get better. I have to get better. I have to keep going. And I, and to some extent, I think some of the greatest people in the world have this like little almost obsessive compulsive disorder in a good way. I think all real elite athletes do because to do things like over and over and over again, a normal person would just like kind of quit. They're like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> but like athletes, like the best, they just keep going and going and going with blisters on their hands or their legs on fire from workouts or they're coughing up blood from runs. And it's like a normal human wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now, but the best in the world, it's almost like they have to do it till it's like automatic and that's how D, uh, Z ran his life. So this is a funny story. I don't know if we have time, but uh, more than when go Z, crazy when, when Z when Z first would um, come to the team, uh, he he didn't have the right sticks, and they weren't the right whip, they weren't the right length, and he didn't know where his <laughs> shot was going really. And if he was on this call, I should tell this story in front of him. <laughs> so he would wheel around the net and at the time we didn't have a lot of real skills so i think it was butch goring maybe was the coach and he, butch he's like all right boys this is the breakout you're gonna wheel the net and rip it off the glass and all the forwards are gonna be busting out to the red line and try to like gather it back and that way like the puck's never gonna be in our end like we're just gonna like do that all the time so it wasn't the most scientific breakout <laughs> But, but incredible. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Z would wheel the net and he'd wind up and he'd take a slapper off the glass to get it out to center ice or whatever. And half the time would go over the glass and almost kill people because he had like a hard shot. Right. So throughout the course of the year, everyone that sat in that section, when he started to wheel the net, the whole crowd would like go. And everyone, That's hilarious. everyone would lean over because they were expecting <laughs> Uh, souvenir night. We call it souvenir night on the team. We're like souvenir night. <laughs> He's giving out free pucks tonight. That's there was so no, funny. And there was no penalty for the puck over the over the glass. So he would do this over and over and over again. I can't believe he never killed anybody because he shot <laughs> so hard. But if you're standing in front, like looking for a deflection or a screen, when he wound up back then, you you would just pray that he didn't kill you. Yeah, because uh, he he would shoot it so hard, but he didn't have control. Like his sticks weren't right. Now to see him become a Norris Trophy winner uh, is is incredible, and I give the guy all the props in the world. Uh, he's absolutely one of the most professional players I've ever played with. Even if he was playing at fifty years old, he'd add something to that team—a veteran presence. Uh, he he's so strong that he's fought some of the heavyweights in the league and just like kind of manhandled them and just like you know not really like outpunched them, but he's like not worried about getting hurt or anything. And his dad was like some 
Olympic wrestler or something. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I respect the guy a lot and to be playing at 44, it's incredible feat, um, to be as big as he is and to move around the ice. Like he does, like, it's incredible. <laughs> he would, our dressing room was so small in Long Island when I first got traded there that he could take his stick and stretch it to the left and touch one of the walls and then <laughs> touch the other side of the wall. Oh <laughs> like that's how God. big, that's how big his reach is. <laughs> so you're like, how do you beat this guy wide? Like, Seriously. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're like, Oh, I, I got him. And then like the stick would come go, go gadget stick would come out of like nowhere. <laughs> I just poked the puck away. So. Well, Dave, uh, this has been amazing, amazing stuff. Thank you for giving us all your time here tonight. But before we let you go, please tell everyone where they can pick up the comeback, my journey through heaven and hell. And uh, maybe you can tell everybody where they can go if they want to learn a little bit more about uh, your life coaching. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so right now, Amazon, we're, we're really working the bestseller thing. So we're going to try to stay at number one as long as we can. Yeah. Uh, hope, hopefully get a good long run there. And then... Um, after that, people could go to allstarcoaching.com and I'm literally just rebuilt the whole website. So that'll be, that should be live any day now, the next day or two. Um, and uh, Instagram, I'll always be updating like what's going on with the business and with, uh, we've got our first live event actually. This is really cool. So, okay. If anybody <laughs> wants to come to Scottsdale for December 3rd, 4th, and 5th, I'm putting on my first ever live event. We're expecting a thousand people. It's going to be epic. And, uh, you know, the tickets are normally $997 on the last couple of podcasts. I offered people, uh, that came in from the pod for like two ninety seven, and, uh, I'm only going to offer that for a short amount of time. So probably a couple of weeks and then we'll, we'll bump back up to full price, but, uh, I'll make sure that I get you guys a link for that. If people want to sign up for that. And, okay, awesome. uh, like I got, it's going to be sick, man. I just, <laughs> some of the speakers I have coming are people that I trained under, like, so they're kind of like help me rebuild my life and, and find this next level. And, um, and then I got some athletes, I got, uh, probably five hockey players that are going to be speaking. Wow, awesome. So if, if this is a podcast to share that part with, cause it's like, these guys are awesome. Their stories are amazing. Um, you know, I don't know if JR, uh, Ronick's going to speak on this one, but, um, like I'm going to ask him probably today or tomorrow, but he's been a huge part of my coaching. So, he just fell in love with my group and he spoke a couple of times and a bunch of people went and watched his, his, uh, show online. And then he like, he's like, man, your people are amazing. And I'm like, well, you can come on anytime you want. So he's probably done like two or three virtual events with us and like been really, he had, he's a big proponent for mental health and things like that. So he shares some incredible stories about things that he went through. And, um, he's just one of the best humans alive, man. I love this guy. Um, what's his, uh, nofilter.net. He's got the show on nofilter.net. So I'll give JR a little plug because there you go. he, he has been so positive. He wrote a great forward for me in my book. Uh, he's become a dear, dear friend. And like, I love this guy, like a brother. And, um, you know, if he's not doing anything, uh, he'll be in Scottsdale th that weekend. So, um, you know, he's just fun to be around and his stories are incredible. And, uh, you know, you know, uh, yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Uh, anytime you ever need anything, you let me know. Um, I love all Islander stuff and Islander people and Islander fans. It's my favorite time in pro sports. And, uh, you know, if anybody out there cheered for me or got out of your seat for me when I played, uh, it seems like a lifetime ago, but I'm truly grateful. And, um, you know, I hope that you get the book. And uh, if you like it, leave a review. It always helps stay on number one bestseller. So, 
who would have thought that Davy Scatcher would have a bestseller book? I looked down the list and there's like my book, then there's like Wayne Gretzky's book, and then, <laughs> then there was Mark Messier's book. And these guys are like my idols. Gretz is my coach. I'm like, holy smokes, we're doing it, man. It's crazy. Dave, well, uh, amazing, amazing stuff. Yes. Fantastic, fantastic interview with us. We really appreciate all your time. It was incredible. Uh, congratulations on the success of the book. We wish you nothing but much more. And uh, hey, maybe we'll have you on again down the road. We'd love to chat with you again. Anytime, guys. Anytime. Dave, have a great day. Thank you so much. Take care.